Bibles this morning for our Old Testament reading to Isaiah, the 22nd chapter, where I will read verses 15 to 22. Isaiah, chapter 22, at the 15th verse. Hear now God's word. Thus saith the Lord, Jehovah of hosts, Go, get thee unto this treasurer, even to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What doest thou here? And whom hast thou here, that thou hast hewed thee out here a sepulcher, hewing him out a sepulcher on high, graving a habitation for himself in the rock? Behold, Jehovah, like a strong man, will hurl thee violently, Yea, he will wrap thee up closely. He will surely wind thee round and round and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die, and there shall be the chariots of thy glory, thou shame of thy Lord's house. And I will thrust thee from thine office, and from thy station shalt thou be pulled down. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, And I will clothe him with thy robe, and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a throne of glory, to his father's house. And then for our New Testament reading, please turn to Revelation, the third chapter, where we will read the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, beginning at the seventh verse of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, He that hath the key of David, he that openeth and none shall shut, and that shutteth and none openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee a door opened which none can shut, that thou hast a little power, and didst keep my word, and didst not deny my name. Behold, I give of the synagogue of Satan, of them that say they are Jews, and they are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou didst keep the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of trial, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no one take thy crown. He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out from there no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and mine own new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And thus far the reading of God's word. This will be the last sermon that I will be preaching in this building and upon this property that has been owned by this congregation, owned by the Plymouth Congregational Church for a long time previous to this, now by the combined congregations, Covenant Community Church. And since this is the last opportunity I have to preach from this pulpit in this place upon our own property, 
I thought it would be appropriate to preach a sermon for that occasion. For this property has been sold, this building will no longer be ours. Yesterday we had quite a work day clearing it out. You can see the evidence of that about you. There's still work to be done, but quite a bit has been accomplished. Much of our possessions have gone to storage. Many are being sold, and we're moving on. Now, having our own property was a great convenience. Uh, those who were formerly in the Placentia congregation uh, understand that. I mean, we were bounced around from place to place, and often people didn't know exactly where to find us. They had to call ahead of time to see where we were going to be located this next Lord's Day. And so being in a place that we could call our own was tremendous. The convenience was obvious. Having our own property gives us all a sense of security. There is a sense in which we have assurance of longevity. We have a future, we think, because we are a landed people. And now that we are not a landed people, now that we're again a church on the move, I'm afraid that um, the temptation will be to think that we've taken a step backward. The temptation would be to make us anxious or perhaps worried that uh, things aren't as secure as they used to be. We're not sure of our future now. We're leasing rather than having our own property. And that could easily be interpreted as a closing of the doors. For after next Lord's Day, when Pastor Curto preaches to you, we will close these doors for the last time on this property. But in fact... If we look at things in a biblical perspective, the sale of our property and our moving to leased facilities, along with all the obvious inconveniences that will be involved in that, is actually an outward token of an open door, not of a closed door, not of a step backward, but of a step forward. A door opened to success and to prosperity and growth by the power of God. For you see, our ministry has expanded so much that this property is no longer adequate to accommodate our needs. One thinks of the prophecy of Isaiah, where Isaiah says, The day is coming where you will say, Strengthen the stakes, pull out the ropes, make a larger tent for God's people. This is no longer adequate. And though that is not a specific prophecy about our move off this property, we enjoy the prosperity of the New Covenant Church. We enjoy the growth of the people of God. And this place, though it has been a blessing, is no longer adequate for us just because we've been blessed. We have no place for our fellowship meetings. The Sunday school is tight. We have a Christian day school that we are running and cannot do it on this property. Our board meetings are uh, cramped as well. And just think of the size of our worship services. We've had days where people stood at the back of the auditorium not knowing where they would sit because we have filled this particular auditorium. Now this is not a closing of the doors and a step back. This is a token that God has opened some doors and op opened them powerfully so that we might enjoy prosperity in our ministry. To press on in Christ's service with the many things that we are able to do as a congregation, we need to expand our facility. And that's why we now have three sites. We have two school sites and a worship location as well. That's a sign of positive growth, a sign of the blessing of God upon us. And it should be a sign of encouragement, a sign of hope for the future for this congregation. And so in recognition of God's grace to us and his power being exercised, in behalf of this congregation, I want to look at a biblical promise about an open door. 
an open door to the Church of Jesus Christ. And I want us to rejoice today that we are blessed to be a church of the open door. Now, I've said before that our church could be called a number of things. We're called the Covenant Community Church because, well, among other things, we stress God's covenant with his people and that that covenant creates a community joined together. We could also call our church a Presbyterian church, and we are. We're a part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church because our church government is that of Presbyterian form. We could be called a Reformed Church because our theology is that of the Protestant Reformation, specifically of the Calvinistic wing of the Reformation. We could call our church a Charismatic Church, although that surprises some of you, but those who remember my preaching in this told you what charisma means in the New Testament. We are a gifted church. The Holy Spirit has provided gifts for ministry. That makes us charismatic. We could be called a Pentecostal church because the power of this church rests upon the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit upon God's people. We could be called a Christian church because we are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Today I'd like to add to the list, we could be called the church of the open door. No, not that big edifice in downtown Los Angeles that many of you have known about for years. The one that a couple of years ago was the subject of some uh, legal disputes and was in the news and so forth. But we are the church, or at least an church, a church of the open door because we enjoy the promise of Revelation 3 that Jesus says, I will open a door to you that no man shall shut. I want us to look at that today. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation, the third chapter. And as we look at this letter, consider the setting in which it is found. First of all, the setting in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, Jesus has been seen by John in a glorious vision as one who stands in the midst of his churches and holds the angels or the pastors of his churches in his right hand. And so Jesus is sovereign. As he said, all power and authority in heaven and earth is mine, and lo, I am with you always. I am in your midst. I am the Lord of the church. I shall guard it. I shall defend it. I shall lead it to victory. Jesus seen in the midst of his church. And then Jesus addresses seven of the churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. In each one of these letters, we find a common form of address. Uh, in just about every one of them, you find a greeting from Jesus and a description of him. There is commendation of the church. There is rebuke of the church, an exhortation given, a promise, the stylized instruction, let he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says. All of these letters follow that basic outline. And we come then to the church in Asia Minor, in the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia meaning brotherly love or brotherly devotion. The city of Philadelphia was founded 140 years before the birth of our Savior by a man named Attalus II, Philadelphus. That's where it got its name. It did not get its name because it was such a, a, a city of brotherly love. Many people have uh, thought that, but it comes rather from the founder of the city, a man from the area of Pergamon, who established Philadelphia as a missionary center for Greek culture, specifically founded it that Hellenism might be spread in Asia Minor. The city prospered and became known as the gateway to the east because of its strategic geographical position. It prospered because of the grape growing in the region. It had hot springs nearby, and because of the hot springs, a number of earthquakes as well, 
And in particular, an earthquake in 17 BC caused extensive damage to the city, and the city was rebuilt with the imperial help of Rome. And so the city was dedicated to the city of Rome. It was also a center for the worship of many pagan gods, among whom we find Dionysius, uh, the god of wine and uh, partying and merriment and sexual um, lack of self-control. The city of Philadelphia had a church in it, a Christian church which, first of all, you should see was a small church. Jesus says in verse 8, I know that you have little power. could be translated little strength. You're not a mighty force in Philadelphia. When the evening news wants to cover things, it doesn't run out to the church of Philadelphia to find out its opinion on things. I know that when you say things, the city council doesn't tremble in its boots. I understand that from a cultural standpoint, people don't look up to you. They don't respect your opinion. They may not even know you're here. You're a church of little strength, a small church, and yet it was a church of good quality. One of the best churches of Asia Minor that we read of, no heresy is mentioned as tormenting this church. No factions are mentioned within this church, as we find in other letters to the churches of Asia Minor. And in fact, this is one of two churches of the seven that receives no blame at all from Jesus. In that list of things you find in each of the letters, I said there is a, a rebuke, exhortation, and uh, a promise made. There's no rebuke to the church at Philadelphia. There's only praise here. It's described in verse 11 as possessing a crown. This is a small but a glorious congregation. A congregation faithful to the word of God, willing to endure persecution. And I'd like you to see, first of all, Christ's praise for this little church of Philadelphia. I want you to note, secondly, Christ's exhortation to the congregation. And then we're going to spend some time on Christ's promise to it. First of all, though, leading up to that promise, why does Jesus praise this congregation? We'll look at verse 8 at the end and verse 10 at the beginning, and you'll see. Uh, this is a very good illustration of why the versification of our English Bibles can often be misleading. Uh, it's going to be difficult to break this up into good conceptual units because your verses are not broken at what I think are the, the proper places. But that's only a matter of convenience or inconvenience. Look at the end of verse 8, and you'll notice Jesus says, You have little strength, but you did keep my word and did not deny my name. And in verse 10 at the beginning, Because you did keep the word of my, it says patience, better steadfastness or endurance, I will keep thee from the hour of trial. Jesus praises this congregation for a couple of things. First, he says, you have kept my word. The Church of Philadelphia had not embraced heretical teaching. It had kept Jesus' word, and unfortunately, we take that too much for granted. We say, well, it's a Christian church. Obviously, it follows the word of Jesus Christ, right? Wrong. You can't take that for granted. Many that name the name of Christ do not honor him. Many who call him Lord do not bow to his word. Jesus had occasion to say to his closest followers, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? There are those who have an outward form of godliness, but don't have the substance, don't have the true power of it. There are those who say they follow Jesus, and yet they follow their own hearts and inclinations. We have plenty of them today, don't we? Plenty of churches round about here who either 
claim to be Christian churches, but then say they want nothing to do with the divine claims of Jesus and his holy word, or which will acknowledge the divine claims of Jesus and his holy word, and yet just don't pay any attention to it. They just kind of say, well, yeah, there's this good book, and they lay it aside. I'm always surprised at the number of young people I meet in our school, for instance, that come from what is a fairly good church in Orange County, and yet they know hardly anything of God's word, and their worship services do not center on God's word. Jesus praises the church at Philadelphia. He says, because you keep my word. That means a lot to Jesus. If any of you are in managerial positions at work, if any of you are fathers or mothers, I think you understand that the importance of those who are under you keeping your word. That when you say something, it's done. Cheerfully, obediently, and fully. Jesus says, I praise you for this. You keep my word. That's the crux for evaluating any church of Christ. Some of you who are looking for congregations to join with, some of you who have been visiting us for some time, you need to think about that too. Does this congregation keep the word of Jesus Christ? Does it hold it high? Does it make it its final standard, its unchallengeable standard? If it does, that should commend us to you. And if we do not, then you need to draw that to our attention because this is what we are dedicated to. And as you look at other congregations, you must do the same thing. Do not ask about the size of people's choirs. Do not ask about the size of their youth group. Do not ask whether they have a bus or a wonderful facility. Ask this first and foremost, because Jesus asked this first and foremost, do they keep his word? Jesus said, I love the church in Philadelphia. They keep my word. And secondly, he says, the church in Philadelphia did not weaken and capitulate in the face of persecution. It kept his name. Not only does it keep his word, it keeps his name. There are a lot of people about us today who take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in vain. I'm not thinking here of those who swear. There are plenty of those. And perhaps your ears get offended and scorched from time to time from the number of people around you who do not know about holy things and who can take the name of God upon their lips and blaspheme his name and treat it as a light thing. To say the name of Jesus at any point when they think something's remarkable or something angers them. That's a horrible thing. But far worse than that, my friends, is to take the name of Jesus upon yourself vainly. To say, I'm a follower of Christ. To lift up his name. To make it your own and then not follow him. To blaspheme God's name among the Gentiles because people look at you and say, you're a Christian and this is the way you behave. Jesus says, I praise you because you did not deny my name. You took my name upon yourself and you didn't do it vainly. And you kept it and endured in holding to that name even through persecution. And so in verse 10, at the very beginning, we see that specifically they had kept the word of Christ's steadfastness. Some of your English translations will have patience. I think that doesn't help us in the late 20th century to understand. It's a matter of endurance. Patient, steadfast endurance through persecution. The word of Christ's steadfastness. Why is it described in that way? Well, in the first place, because Christ is the one who endured steadfastly. In Hebrews, the 12th chapter, we read that Jesus, for the glory that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And so Jesus is the one who steadfastly endured. It's the word of his endurance. However, his kingdom calls for steadfast endurance as well. In Revelation 1.9, 
John says, I, John, your brother and partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom and steadfastness which are in Jesus was in the isle called Potmos. John says, if you're a partaker in the kingdom, you partake in steadfast endurance through persecution, even as I now on Potmos must do. And finally, Jesus calls Christians to be steadfast. In Luke 8, verse 15, you may want to notice this exhortation. Luke, the 8th chapter, at the 15th verse, where our Savior says, Speaking of seed that was sown in the good ground, these are such as in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, hold it fast and bring forth fruit with steadfastness. He calls us to bring forth fruit through endurance, enduring persecution, steadfastly doing so. In Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, And they who endure to the end shall be saved. And so the church in Philadelphia was a grand church, a crowned church, a church beloved of Jesus because it honored his word and kept his name and kept his name even through persecution. And so Jesus brings an exhortation to this congregation in verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, Hold fast which thou hast, that no one take thy crown. He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar. Jesus calls on this congregation to do two things. First of all, he says, hold fast. Translate another way. Keep a firm grip on it. That which you have, Jesus has, hold tight. Don't let it go so that you will not forfeit your crown. The word crown actually means a victory wreath, the sort of thing given to a runner when he finishes the race and is in first place. Then the victory wreath, the crown, is put on his head. Jesus says, hold fast what you have, so that that victory wreath, that crown, will not be taken away, so that it will not be forfeited. Remember King Saul in the Old Testament, how he forfeited his crown to King David? And now Jesus, the greater son of David, the true king of the Davidic kingdom, says, you hold on to your crown, lest you forfeit it, even as Saul did. Hold on tight. And Jesus says, secondly, to the one who overcomes. That word overcoming is a marvelous word. We really need to say about three or four things about it in English to capture the whole sense of the Greek. But what is lacking, I think, when we just say overcome, what we must especially note today is this note of victory. It means to be victorious, to be the one who triumphs, overcome. Jesus calls on the church to be victorious because he does not expect his church to succumb to losing or to compromise or to capitulation. Jesus says, you're a good church. You're a crowned church. You keep my word. You honor my name. You endure persecution. But hold on and be victorious. Don't give in to losing. Don't compromise. Don't capitulate. In Romans, the 8th chapter, Paul assures us that in Christ, even though we may suffer persecution, even though we may come under the sword, even though we are led away as lambs to slaughter, Paul says we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. More than conquerors. Jesus says you be a conqueror. You be a winner. The church of Jesus Christ is not a wimp in history. It's not a loser in history. The church of Jesus Christ overcomes in his name and by his power and through his spirit. The church of Jesus Christ is to hold fast 
and to overcome. There's a lesson here, isn't there? That the life of the congregation is one of perseverance and of vigilance, not of taking things for granted or resting on past accomplishments. Jesus doesn't say, you've done a good job, that's fine. Just kind of wait till you go to heaven now. Nor does he say, you've done a real good job, just hold on to the rapture. You know, you've accomplished more than just about anybody else. In terms of a sliding scale, if we were to do this on a matter of moral averages, you'd probably be an A-plus church. And so, take your ease now. Jesus doesn't say anything of the sort. He says, you hold on to what you've accomplished. You hold on to what you have. Be vigilant, because you'll lose it. The crown will fade away. It'll be taken and you'll forfeit. You must hold on and you must press further. For the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Be victorious. Be an overcomer. Be triumphant in Christ. Don't take things for granted. Don't rest on your past accomplishments. The church then is always called upon to press on steadfastly to the end. And so Jesus calls this church to press on. Think of the things that have been accomplished in our congregation over the last few years. And here I think of both of the congregations that are now merged together. Think of the doctrinal advances. Think of the discipline. Think of the fellowship. Think of the growth. Think of the nurturing. Think of the evangelism and the prayer and all of these wonderful blessings. Jesus says, don't take it for granted. Press on. Hold fast. Be victorious. And then what does he promise such a congregation? Just a little bitty congregation no strength, no real reputation in the world, no power to push people around, but Jesus says you're faithful, and I honor that, I love that, I exhort you to press on. And what does he promise if we do? He promises three things. First of all, a permanent possession of a place in God's kingdom. Secondly, deliverance from danger which is near at hand. And thirdly, an open door of ministerial power. Let's look at those quickly today. What does Jesus promise? A little church like the church at Philadelphia or a little church like ours in Newport Beach? Jesus promises first a permanent possession of a place in God's kingdom. He that overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out from there no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven and my own new name. We're promised to be made a pillar in the sanctuary of God, the Father, Jesus' own God. A pillar. Remember how David said that it would be a grand blessing if he could but be a doorkeeper in the house of his God? I bet you have days where you think about that. You say, God, I'll just be satisfied to clean the mats that people wipe their feet upon, just to be a doorkeeper in your temple. I deserve nothing better. I don't even deserve to be that. Here Jesus promises the victorious church not just to be the doorkeeper, but to be a pillar of that temple, which belongs to God. To have an unshakable place, so that as Jesus explains it, you shall not go out of there anymore. To know that you belong to the kingdom of God, that you have a central, crucial place there and that it will never be shaken. You'll never leave. 
One thing have I asked of Jehovah, that will I seek after, David said, that I may dwell in the house of Jehovah all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Jehovah and inquire in his temple. Psalm 27.4. And so Jesus fulfills the longing of David's heart for those who in Philadelphia or Newport Beach or anywhere else will be victorious in his name, steadfast to the end. He says, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you'll never go out. And you shall inherit new names. Remember, in biblical terminology, a name characterizes one's identity and character. And so Jesus says, I will give you a new identity, a new character, along with this new name. And what wonderful names are given. It's interesting to me that historically the city of Philadelphia had been named, renamed twice. And as to this, as to the church in this city, that Jesus promises a new name. Your city's been renamed, I will rename you. And how will he rename us? In three ways. Victorious believers have written upon them the name which belongs to God. I will put on you the name of my God. And no man dare tamper with you because God's name is on you. He owns us. Isn't there great comfort in that? Great security in that? Great stability in that, that God's name is on you. Not only do you lift up the name of God when you profess it, but God puts his name on you. He marks you out as his own. And Jesus says the name of his city will be put on you as well, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from God. And so citizenship rights in the kingdom of God are bestowed on us as the name of the city of our God is put on us as well. And then thirdly, Jesus says, and this is the sweetest of all, He says, I will put my new name on you. Jesus has a new name? He sure does. Because you see, Jesus came into this world a humiliated Savior, and he left this world a glorified Lord. And Jesus said, I have a new name and identity too, because what I've accomplished for your salvation, and my new name I share with you. And so the name of my God, and the city of my God, and my own name shall be yours. What promises? But that's not all. Jesus promises not only eternal security in the kingdom of God, but he promises to the church at Philadelphia deliverance from danger that is near at hand. Look at verse 10. Because you did keep the word of my steadfastness, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. I come quickly. Jesus here says that because they have kept his word, he will keep them. Keep my word, and I'll hold on to you. What's going to happen in the near future is that John prophesies an hour of trial to come upon the empire. Please understand what John is talking about here. He speaks about an hour of trial, a period of time a season of God's judgmental wrath. In the 14th chapter of Revelation, verses 7 and 15, you notice, And he saith with a great voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him who made heaven and earth. Verse 15, And another angel came out from the temple, crying with a great voice to him that sat on the cloud, Send forth thy sickle and reap, for the hour to reap is come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. There's going to be an hour of God's judgmental wrath to come upon the earth. The word that is used here, upon the whole world, in Greek is oikomene. It means the whole ecumenical earth. That's where we get the word ecumenical in English. Or to put it very simply, the civilized empire. 
This does not mean the whole globe. That's not the word that would be used in Greek. This means the established empire, the Roman Empire in John's day. An hour of trouble coming from God's hand is going to break forth on the Roman Empire. And what Jesus promises is, since you have kept my word, I will keep you from that hour. When my judgment falls upon this empire for its rejection of my claims and its opposition to my kingdom and its persecution of my people, you shall be kept. I will watch over you especially through this time, this short time where the world will suffer, but you will know in the hollow of my hand my own protection and love. This period of pain for the Roman Empire, which shall try them that live upon the earth, is called a coming of the Lord. And that's important for us who want to be Bible students, to understand correctly the use of biblical terminology. In Matthew, the 26th chapter, verse 64, at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, when he was asked if, in fact, he was the Son of God, he said, You have said it, and you shall see me coming upon the clouds. When will they see Jesus coming upon the clouds? If you look in Matthew's gospel earlier at the 16th chapter, you notice that Jesus said to his hearers that those who are standing right there shall see him come upon the clouds. That before they die, he will come upon the clouds. You say, how is that? Jesus hasn't returned again. He didn't come back in the generation of those hearers. Yes, he did. He did not come back for his second return. He did not come back in blazing glory to judge the world and to separate the sheep from the goats. But the Bible says he did come. And how is it that he came? If you look at the 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, you'll see that Jesus warns that in this great day of tribulation and distress, he will come upon the clouds. And he says, and these things shall all take place within the generation of my hearers. Not one of these things shall fail to take place, Jesus says, before this generation passes. Now, when did Jesus do that? When did Jesus exercise his mighty power, illustrate that he was enthroned at God's right hand, and judge those who had tormented him and persecuted his people? Well, of course, any student of Bible history can tell you that in A.D. 70, when Jesus destroyed Jerusalem, he vindicated his name and fulfilled his threats upon those people. He came into his own, his own received him not. But when Jesus was going to Golgotha up that road to be crucified and the women were weeping, he said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. For the day is coming. If they do this, when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Jesus said, this is still the day of your visitation. If they crucify me while you still have a little light from God, what shall happen when God finally turns away? Jesus said, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a kingdom producing the fruit thereof. And so in AD 70, Jesus did, as he said to his tormentors, as he said to those who crucified him and unjustly condemned him, Jesus came and destroyed them. Jesus now speaks here of a day or an hour of trial to come upon the entire empire that is a coming. I come quickly, not for the second and last time to judge the whole world, but I come in history to execute my will and to destroy those who would destroy my kingdom. In Revelation 1, verse 3, do remember that, G, that John wrote, Blessed is he that reads, and they that hear the words of the prophecy, and keep the things which are written, for the time is at hand. 
John didn't say these things are going to take place thousands of years from now or even hundreds of years from now. He said the time's at hand. Blessed are those who read because you're going to begin to see these things fulfilled in your own lifetime, as Jesus said. And so we see that the Church of Philadelphia has promised that if it will be steadfast and endure persecution, if it will keep the name of Jesus and be victorious in that name, it will be granted a steadfast place in the kingdom of God for all eternity. And it will be held in the hollow of Jesus' hand through the storm of persecution to come upon the empire that Jesus will send. But then thirdly and most gloriously in the point of this morning's message, Jesus promises an open door of ministerial power. The example of that open door is found in verse 9. Behold, I give of the synagogue of Satan of them that say they are Jews, but they are not, and do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and know that I have loved thee. Even the hostile deniers of the gospel, even the Jews, he says, will recognize and willingly become submissive to the church and know that Jesus has loved it. The Bible teaches us that Jews are not really Jews. Kind of a paradox there. Those who are ethnically of the Jewish stock are not true Jews spiritually in the eyes of God. Christians are true Jews. In Romans, the second chapter, verses 28 and 29, Paul says that openly, when his circumcision is not of the flesh, but of the heart. Those who have a circumcised heart and follow Jesus Christ in faith, they are the circumcised. In Galatians 3, verse 7, Paul tells us that the seed of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham and follow Jesus Christ. Or in Galatians 6, verse 16, Paul pronounces benediction upon the Israel of God, meaning upon the Galatian Christians. We are the true Israel. We are the true Jews. And Jesus says right here, those who claim to be Jews, but they are not. That's not because they are wrong about their ethnic origin. It's because they do not have the right to be called the people of God and Jews any longer. They are rather called what by Jesus? Remember, this is not John. This is not some disgruntled Christian saying these things to be mean. But Jesus says they are a synagogue of Satan. When they gather together for their assemblies to study God's word and to praise his name, they are really inspired by Satan. They are not followers of Jehovah any longer at all. And what will happen to those who hate the gospel and hate the Savior and hate the Savior's people? The Church of Philadelphia, though it be small in size and insignificant culturally, will see even the Jews come and bow down to the feet of the congregation there and say, Jesus has loved you. Boy, I'll tell you, what a day of power that is going to be. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, the 60th chapter. In Isaiah 60, verses 3 and 14, I think we should take just a moment to read that. We see how the prophet looked forward to a day where light would shine upon God's people. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of Jehovah is risen upon thee. Verse 3, And nations shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Nations, the Gentiles shall come to you, Isaiah says. And in verse 14, And the sons of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee, and all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee the city of Jehovah, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. 
What a marvelous twist has taken place in the fulfillment of that prophecy. The Jews thought the Gentiles would bow at the soles of their feet and acknowledge that they were God's kingdom. And in fact, it's fulfilled that the Jews who are unbelievers bow down at the soles of the feet of Gentiles that are believers. For they are the true Jews and the true people of God. And here it is fulfilled. The promise of the church of Philadelphia, even those of the synagogue of Satan will acknowledge that I have loved you and they will bow down to your feet. But what does that exemplify? I said that's the example of the blessing. The example is of a wider blessing and a wider promise made by Christ in verses 7 and 8 where he says, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and none shall shut, and that shutteth and none openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee a door opened which none can shut. You know what great power your ministry will have? You know what prosperity and success you may expect? Then he exemplifies that even the Jews will bow down to your feet. But you see, the Jews bowing down is only an example of the wider promise where Jesus says, I'm opening a door to you. And when I open the door, nobody will close it. Christ is described as holy and true. And we could dwell on that, but specifically this morning, remember that he has the key of David. The key of David, that means that Jesus has the highest power and authority in the kingdom that was promised to David. He is the true king of the Davidic kingdom. He is the Lord in the kingdom of God. And Jesus opens and closes the kingdom to men. He says that in Matthew 16. When the elders of the congregation open or close membership, that is but a reflection of what is taking place in heaven because Jesus is the one who opens and closes his kingdom to men. And when he opens and closes the doors of his kingdom, he does so firmly without fear that anyone will interfere with him. For he does whatever he wishes to do, granting or withholding admission to the new Jerusalem and the kingdom of his God. Jesus says, I have the key of David. And when I open a door, no man closes it. When I close it, no man opens it. The allusion here is to Isaiah, the 22nd chapter, verses 15 to 22, which was our Old Testament reading this morning. And in that chapter, we read of a particular portion of the history of Israel right before it went into exile, especially the history of Judah, the southern kingdom, under King Hezekiah. When Hezekiah was taken out of the way, then one Shebna was appointed in his place. And we read in Isaiah 22, the word of Isaiah, a very strong word, a very pungent and sarcastic word. He comes to Shebna and he says, God will wind you up like a ball and throw you into a far country and you'll die there. Shebna, you'll be taken away in exile. You're going to be removed from power because of your pride and because you made an alliance with the Egyptians in particular. You didn't trust the power of God. You went out to the Egyptians, and for that reason, God has sent me to say to you, God will bounce you into a far country. You're gone, Shebna. And then God will raise up one to take your place, one called Eliakim. Beautiful name in Hebrew. It means God will establish it. Eliakim. And Eliakim will be made prefect over the palace of King Hezekiah in your place. And why will Eliakim have this? Because he is a true servant of the Lord. He is Jehovah's servant. And he will be made over the house. Over the house. 
Uh, who is this Eliakim? Well, he's a historical figure. But, of course, Eliakim was but a shadow of a coming one who really has the key of David. Eliakim is but a shadow of the one who will truly establish the kingdom of God. Eliakim, the servant of the Lord, is really a shadow of the true servant of the Lord who is to come. Eliakim, who is placed over the house, is really a foreshadow of Jesus who is placed over all of God's house, as we read in Hebrews, the third chapter. And Isaiah said that Eliakim would receive authority from God and will be established with sure power. And how is that described? Because when Eliakim opens, no man shall shut. Eliakim, the type of Jesus to come, Lord over the house of God, who has the key of David, so that when he opens a door, no man can shut it, no man can interfere. His control over the royal kingdom is so strong and without any opposition that counts that he opens the kingdom and no man shuts it. And so Christ says to the church at Philadelphia, I'm opening a door for you. And when I open the door, no man will shut it because the key of David is mine and I am sovereign and I am glorious. And though you may seem small in the eyes of the world, no one will take away your place. And though it may seem that you're not established in worldly terms, but I will establish you. And I will establish you in such a way that even your most hostile persecutors will bow down at your feet. Yes, I'm opening a door for you. Be faithful. What does this phrase, an open door, mean? There are three other places in the New Testament that we can look at real quickly. And I think we'll get the idea very clearly in our minds. Acts, the 14th chapter, verse 27. 14 at the 27th verse, notice Paul's words. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all things that God had done through them, and that he had opened a door of faith unto the Gentiles. When they sat down and rehearsed with the church the great power of God and the establishing of Christ's kingdom throughout the empire, they said, God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 16, I'm sorry, verse 9, get those numbers right, 1 Corinthians 16, at the ninth verse, Paul says, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. There may be many enemies, but he says, God's opened a door effectually to my ministry. And then 2 Corinthians 2.12. One more use of that expression. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened unto me in the Lord, I had no relief from my spirit, so forth and so on. Paul uses the expression. John uses the expression. Isaiah uses the expression. Do you get the point? When God opens doors, things happen. When God opens doors, his kingdom prospers. His people move on. They see victory in terms of their ministry and their outreach. This was a message to the church at Philadelphia, a very small church. I know you only have a little power, Jesus says. I know you don't count for much, but you mean a lot to me. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do, because you've kept my word, and you've kept my name, and you've been steadfast, because I have the key of David. I'm going to open a door for you. And when I open it, nobody's going to close it. That's not just the message for the church at Philadelphia, though. 
Because you know how it ends? You notice in verse 13, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Yes, Jesus spoke specifically to the circumstances at Philadelphia, but he wants all the churches to listen in. Do you have an ear this morning to hear this? Do you know what God's telling you? That if you'll be faithful, he will give you prosperity in your ministry. If you'll be steadfast, he will establish you. If you minister in his name and by his power, he'll open a door that no man shall close. So congregation of Jesus Christ, we are closing the door to this property. But in closing it, I want you to rejoice and remember that in so doing, God is sovereignly opening a door, a door of ministerial power. And as he does so, no man's going to ever close it. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would crown us, that you would make us like that small but faithful church in Philadelphia of old, that you would give us steadfast endurance through persecution, through discouragement, that you would keep us from compromise and capitulation, that you would set before us your holy word and make us dedicated to it above all. We do pray that we would be willing to endure all things for the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel. We pray that you would give us a sense of rejoicing today that as a small church trying to be faithful to you, we need not fear the closing of our doors here. That we need not see this as a step backward for us or something that sets us back. But rather this is a grand opening, an opening of the way that your power has opened up for us, that we might continue to grow and to minister in your name, to reach the nations for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that this is not a momentary or fleeting opportunity, that as you open the door for us, you will see to it that no one shuts it. Lord, we know that our own rebellion and disloyalty, our faithlessness and sin can close that door because we would not have the right to be called your people. Lord, keep us from such sins. Keep us on the proper path. Help us to honor your word. And in so doing, fulfill your promise that your people shall never see the doors closed again. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.